An analogy is a comparison that asserts a parallel, explicit or implicit, between two distinct things. That's John Pollock, a former presidential speechwriter who is an expert in the power of analogies. I wanted to ask John to be on the show because, well, listen to these headlines. The CFO is chief storyteller, Oracle Blogs 2021. The evolution of the CFO into the chief data storyteller. In 2018, we have the art of storytelling, a new but crucial CFO skill. One more, and this one's CXO today in 2021, why every CFO should master the art of storytelling. I think you get the idea. And these are nice articles, but many are shallow without explaining how to be great storytellers. My thought is let's start understanding and mastering the power of great analogies as a starting point. And John Pollock, he's our guy to do this. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. This is going to be a fun conversation. Before I bought John's book, I found him on a YouTube video doing a TEDx presentation on the power of analogies. And yes, a former presidential speechwriter, easy peasy, right? But were you nervous, John, doing that TEDx presentation? Yeah, I mean, I've written a lot of speeches, and it's way, way different to, to write a great speech and, and hand it off to either a good speaker or a bad speaker. Uh, and, and I've done some public speaking. That was the largest audience I've ever spoken to live. It was 1,700 people. And I was leading, I was the opening, uh, the opening speaker. Because you, you got to be 13 minutes, you can't wander. You have to, you have to essentially wrote it out, condensed it down, tried to get it just so, and then essentially memorized it because there's, you're down to the second, you know, how many words per minute you're, you're speaking. And, and so there was that pressure. I mean, I knew the material, uh, so I, I wasn't nervous about the material, but in terms of, you know, you're, you've essentially memorized a 13 minute talk word for word, and, and you're trying to hit it. And I suppose with more practice, I, I would have been less nervous, but I was nervous. Well, my opinion, you did not look nervous. I watched it not once. I didn't watch it twice, watched it three times, and I bought your book. So, well, thank you. So, All right. And is that how you came on to this? Yes. Somebody recommended that TEDx talk. Actually, I did, I did a search. So, I, huh. I mean, this is completely... Not completely random because I was studying analogies and I was like, okay, I want to, I want to find some people who really know what they're talking about. And I'm glad I did. And we'll, we'll talk about the research of your book a little bit later because there's over 50 pages of just research notes. Uh, so I- incredible. One other thing I want to point out, John, is you're a former presidential speechwriter. How cool is that? Uh, that was a lot of fun. I, uh felt it was a great honor and i felt that uh i learned a lot uh and i i loved the texture of it i, I loved the i loved walking into the west wing every day i loved talking with the groundskeepers about the historic trees and 
bushes on the on the White House grounds. Uh, I loved seeing the burn marks on the stone uh, in the in the basement of the West uh, of the White House, where the the charred from when the the, the British torched it uh, in, in 1812. And it was great to see how the White House worked close up. I can't even relate to a president giving a speech, whether a big speech, minor one, small event, and you're hearing some of the words that you wrote. That's that's got to be incredibly meaningful to you as a speechwriter, right? Well, one of the measures of success as a speechwriter is uh, – does the principal use the words that you wrote? Now, President Clinton uh, was very unusual in that he cared deeply about the substance, and he also cared deeply about uh, how it was conveyed, uh, how how one could persuade people uh, of of the merits of the substance, and and some principals care mostly: do I sound good? Do I get applause? Some are less interested in that and is my policy sound? And he cared about both. And getting to work for him was uh, a wonderful uh, opportunity. He was just an outstanding speaker in every uh, regard. One of the biggest lessons I learned uh, from him was that you don't have to tear down the other guy uh, to make your point. He might tear down the other guy's idea, but not the other person. And, and that is something that we would benefit from a lot in today's rancorous debates because people are, are, are so busy tearing down the other person that they don't listen to whatever truth might lie within their ideas. Uh, and if there is no truth, you can disagree with that without tearing down the other, the other person. I am a huge, I mean a huge Aaron Sorkin fan. He's the kind of guy I'll look him up and, okay, what what TV shows has he done? What movies has he done? Uh, Molly's Game is one of my favorite books I've read in the last five years. He, Of course, that's uh, his book. Well, he did the screenplay for it. But one of my favorite TV shows of his, it's a toss-up between the newsroom and, and uh, the West Wing. So, yeah, I love the West Wing, especially the first four years where he was associated with it. Toby Ziegler may be one of my all-time favorite characters. And for those who are not familiar with the show or the name, Toby was a brilliant, I mean, an over-the-top speechwriter. Here's a question. You and your peers, do you think Toby got the, the, the role close? Maybe I should say, did Aaron Sorkin get it right? How, how close was Toby as a speechwriter? I would say a couple of things. One is they had to... For purposes of TV, condense a lot of characters down into fewer people, and so in real life, uh, there's in my case there were there are six speechwriters, and and everybody had uh, do everything, but but people had specialties, uh, and they might lean on one person uh, when there was a call for poetry, and then another person for policy. So there's a, a distillation into fewer characters in that show. And the second thing is that we were not uh, always as pithy and witty in every line we uttered uh, in daily work. And so uh, there are some liberties in television that are make for delicious watching. Uh, and real life is a little bit 
a little bit messier. To, to use an analogy, uh, they say never watch sausage or laws being made. I want to get into your book, Shortcut, and I want to just ask some very basic questions before we get into some of the, the big ideas. Uh, what is, in your opinion, of course, it's in the book, what is the best definition or what is your favorite definition of analogy? There are a lot of definitions uh, floating out there. And, and people often ask me, well, what's the difference between a simile and a metaphor, uh, a cliche, a parable? And those all fall under the, the golf umbrella of analogy. An analogy is a comparison that asserts a parallel, explicit or implicit, between two distinct things, usually based on a perception of, of something they have in common. It seems like there's a higher sense of awareness of how stories are written, you know, the architecture of a great story. I could have a book here in my hand that I've been reading called The Writer's Journey by Christopher, I don't know if it's Vogler or Vogler, but my question is, what's the difference between analogy and story? All analogies tell a story. Not all stories use analogies or, or are analogies. Uh, and the, the, the way to think of it is I could say, I, I, you know, I went to the grocery store and I bought steak. Uh, and that, that's a story. It's not a, not a particularly interesting story, but it's a story. It's not making an argument. Uh, and, and analogies are, are, are essentially spring-loaded arguments. Uh, they, they lead you uh, or push you to a certain conclusion. And, and, and that's really the difference, that, that they're, they're a type of story. Analogy is a type of story. I should be creating tick marks for every time I hear analogy. Use the word spring-loaded. That was a good one. Uh, excellent. Uh, if I were to give you a title for your book or a subtitle, it would be The Anatomy the anatomy of analogies. Having said that, John, can anyone master, and I'm going to use the word art, can anyone master the art of analogy? Analogies are like anything else. If you practice, you get better. Uh, can the greatest ball player get better at what they do? Of course, if they're batting you know, 490, that would be an extraordinary season. But they're not batting 1,000, so of course there's room for improvement. Uh, some people have a natural uh, affinity for uh, and, and ability with analogy, and even they swing and miss sometimes. But the important thing is to practice. And I would say the first step along that path is listening for the analogies you hear in everyday life, because if you start paying attention, they, they, they lie everywhere. It is how people communicate uh, with each other, and it's how we navigate through the world. Bruce Reynolds, no one probably knows that name until you hear the term the great train robbery, and he called the great train robbery his what? Sistine Chapel, uh, because it was a masterpiece, the best in its class, audacious uh, in its beauty. Again, I love, love that analogy. The other one is it involves the law and a court case. And so I would think like finance, corporate finance, you know, law can be very, at times, very abstract. 
But I learned that the legal system relies, now I'm going to use the word heavily. That may not, that may be an exaggeration. I'll just say the, the legal system relies on analogy at times. Hopefully I got that, maybe said that correctly. There's a case that you mentioned, Adams versus New Jersey. And this is a case where, again, the legal system is relying on analogy to help make a decision. I thought that was incredibly uh, fascinating. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. So in that case, uh, Adams was a passenger on the New Jersey Steamboat Company going up the Hudson, and he had rented a, uh, a room. And uh, I think he uh, a thief broke in and, and stole $160, which at the time was a vast sum yes. of money. And he sued uh, the Steamboat Company saying, you owe me money. You, this you're liable for that, and 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 it wound its way through the courts, and the and the steamboat company said, uh, transportation companies are not liable for thefts that occur on them, and and they cited their case law, and he and he said innkeepers are uh, liable uh, for their uh, their the security of of uh, their their guests. Uh, rooms and belongings. And it came down to a, a debate, in essence, which analogy was uh, more valid. Was, was, the, was the, the fact that he had rented an overnight room on a moving vessel uh, salient, or was it the moving vessel that happened to have uh, overnight accommodations? And in the end, uh, the company was held liable and and owed him the $160. But the law is always about uh, comparing a, a, a set of facts that is going to be different every single time in, in some way to uh, standards uh, and, and, and trying to say, how do these two situations match up? What is the same? What is different? And what is most relevant? And that is the essence of analogy is, is, is comparing one thing to another and asserting uh, that certain similarities are are valid and important and defining and whatever is not the same is less important or completely irrelevant. In, in reading between the lines, I guess this was an issue even before that case because you have railroads where there tends to be a fair amount of theft back then because you slept in more of a open compartment so I think the expectation level was passengers expected to potentially be stolen from. So they had to take measures. So they, the railroads sleeping car were not considered to be like a hotel, like a, like a steamboat was. So again, with, with your own private uh, cabin. Exactly. 
Right. And of course, the, these uh, debates in Long Hawk go back uh, 1,500 years because in the 6th century, uh, when there was an, an Irish uh, monk named Columkill, uh, who, when he was a guest of uh, another uh, clergy, or ex- excuse me, a, a, a nobility, a member of the nobility, he he snuck into his library at night and copied a book, uh, and and the the his host found out and and was extremely angry because of course this was before the printing press, right. And, and said, you stole my book. And he said, no, I, I made a copy of the book. It's mine. And it went to the king for a uh, decision. And the king ruled that just as the calf is the is the, the son of the cow, so is the, the calf book, the, the son of the, the cow book. Uh, the, the book is not yours, Colin Kill. It belongs to your host. And that sparked a, a physical battle between armies. Uh, column kill one. And that that was essentially the first copyright battle in history. Again, great story. By, and by the way, you ha- Gutenberg is mentioned in the book, too. So uh, I was curious if you bring that. Uh, excellent. Excellent. Uh, last one is an example. And I did not know the story. Uh, I don't know anyone who does not know about or have seen uh, the great Apple commercial. Uh, from the, was it 1984 Super Bowl? But, but there is a narrative before that that I'd never read before, and it's a bicycle of the mind. And I'm going to shut up and let you fill in the blanks. Again, this is brilliant, and it involves an animal and efficiency. So, when Apple computer had 500 employees and was selling, uh, I think the Apple II, which if you're old enough, you recall had green uh, screens and, and words only uh, jobs. Got to look at um, Xerox park, Xerox parks, the, the graphical uh, user interface with, and he realized that, that this desktop uh had the potential to revolutionize people's relationships with computers. And in the years before he delivered these beautifully polished choreographed product demos, uh, he was giving a talk. uh, And uh, while the, while the Macintosh was still under wraps and and, and being developed secretly with, with the desktop. And he was telling the audience that, that he had read this article in Scientific American uh, in which the relative uh, locomotive efficiency of different animals was ranked. Like how efficiently could animal, animal A move from here to there? And, and at the top of the list was the condor, which barely had to flap its wings and was incredibly efficient at, at soaring from A to B. And people ranked way down the list. But somebody had tested humans with a bicycle and suddenly humans were riding a bicycle were the most efficient uh, at getting from A to B. And he said, what we are doing at Apple is inventing a bicycle for the mind. And that was a very powerful way of thinking that he wasn't building a, a computer that was for a specialist to do one thing. He was uh, building a machine that would amplify 
uh, human imagination and take it wherever it wanted to go. He drew the analogy. He said uh, the Industrial Revolution was about uh, amplifying sweat uh, uh, and, and, and turning energy into muscle. He, he was turning the, you know, giving the mind a bicycle to amplify creativity. And, and indeed, that computer revolutionized the way people related to computers and made them accessible to a huge mass market. And now everyone carries one in their pocket. Are there too many sports analogies out there? I work with a lot of high dopamine, high result, quick result CEOs. Over the last 20 years, I've worked with CEOs who have doubled, tripled, quadrupled uh, their revenues, profitable cash flow. So I've been lucky work with some, but a lot of these people, sports analogy over and over and over. Do we tend to overdo it in your opinion? Absolutely. I, I listen, I've uh, had the good fortune to work with uh, a lot of uh, corporate leaders as well. Uh, but steering people away from tired, overused cliches is really important because uh, how many t- times have you heard you, the, the, this is the fourth quarter. It's the end of the quarter. We, we, we've got to score. We've got to get a, we've got to hit a home run. And, and those don't carry any emotional power. Uh, people know what they mean, but they don't, they don't really resonate on any emotional level because they're, they're like threadbare carpet. You've stepped on it too many times. And if you're trying to engage, if you're trying to motivate, uh, if you're trying to persuade people to action, you need to find ways uh, that help them see something from a fresh perspective that, that have some sort of explanatory or emotional uh, power and, and sports cliches uh, while commonly understood lack that punch. And even when you combine sports cliches with war analogies, now, now you're getting into another type of conversation, lots of war metaphors, cliches, jargon. And I've had to watch myself. Uh, I live in Missouri, born and raised from Missouri. Uh, in basketball, there used to be what's called the border wars between Missouri and Kansas. And I read Truman many years ago uh, by one of, one of my favorite uh, uh, historians. And early in the book, we get to see some of the history of uh, the early years of Missouri and those border wars were I mean, they were brutal, and um, I I quit using that term. So even the using the war metaphors and analogies, th- those are overused. They get tiresome, and you see that especially in football, uh, where where they where war and football trade uh, analogies back and forth. I mean, the nuclear football, you don't drop the football, and those are the codes that go with the president and the attaché clip, you know cuffed to the to the military aid's wrist in football you're in the trenches you throw the long bomb uh the 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 defensive front the the offensive the offensive line there there it becomes so so common that people don't even hear it anymore and, and in fact if you if you look at the cultural 
associations with football, it is the most militarized of all the sports. And that's why you have part of, partly because it's outdoors, but you generally don't have flyovers of jets at, at, at the opening pitch. You, you tend to have them at, at kickoff. And, and there's just a, it's just, it's a circular uh, process there now. Speaking of sports and the potential dark side of analogies, California's three strikes and your outlaw enacted, I believe, in the 1990s. It sounds good, but was it an improper analogy? You're referring to the story of a, a young woman who was murdered uh, in a robbery uh, by convicted felons, and her father uh, was obviously distraught and set out to make sure that, that convicted felons were, were locked up, not uh, let out on the street to commit more crimes. And he ultimately launched a ballot initiative and he called it three strikes and you're out. And on your third uh, felony conviction, you were locked up uh, for life. And that really resonated with a lot of people uh, in part because baseball is all about accountability. Uh, There are very specific rules. There are stats on every action. They either are positive actions or negative actions. And, and, and you are responsible for your actions. And uh, this passed overwhelmingly uh, at the ballot box. And as a result, uh, prison populations skyrocketed, to use an analogy that just comes out without even thinking of it, uh, and, and did it lock up some dangerous criminals? Absolutely. Uh, did it also catch a lot of people uh, whose third offenses uh, were relatively minor and, and, and nonviolent? Yes, it did. And now the United States, and about half the states adopted three strikes laws as a, as a result. And the prison population in the United States is, is north of 2 million people. And it's the a quarter of the world's population. And what do we have? 320 million people in a, in a world of, of 9 billion, and we have a quarter of the, the prison population. Well, part of the reason, and part of the reason why we, we spend $75 billion a year of taxpayer dollars on that is because three strikes and you're out was an appealing uh, analogy. But, but pause for a second. In baseball, that third strike is qualitatively different there are, you can you can keep fouling uh, fouling out uh, on the third strike it, it, forever if you can get a piece of the ball and it keeps and it doesn't get caught and and so there's a, a a difference that was ignored in the analogy but the bigger question is why should baseball be the model for criminal justice I mean one's a game one's not a game they're very different and yet as an analogy it was short it was pithy. It was well-intentioned, but it was wrong. And now uh, California voters uh, ultimately uh, amended that to uh, account for reality and, and, tr- and escape from the, from the confines of that analogy. John, you lay out a fantastic framework. It's a middle construct that serves as a blueprint for an analogy. It's five steps, right? As I thought about analogy and researched analogy, uh, to write this book, I, I came to recognize that that good analogies uh, achieve five things. One, they use the familiar to explain something that's less familiar. Two, 
they highlight similarities and they hide or obscure differences. Uh, three, uh, they, they establish or identify a useful abstraction. Four, they tell a coherent story. Five, uh, they resonate emotionally. And let me give you an example uh, that everyone can understand to just illustrate this. Let's take the Mac, uh, Steve Jobs' computer. Uh, he essentially said, if you can use a desktop, you can use this computer because this is a computer desktop. And it had uh, a trash can for the trash. It had a file folder for your files. It had a sheet of paper for your, for your documents. It had scissors to cut and a little glue pot to paste. And of course, what that did is it, it showed the similarities uh, of how we manipulate information conceptually. And it, it, and it obscured the differences that using the physical objects on a, on a, on a physical desktop are, is completely different than moving something called a mouse, another analogy, uh, around and, and digitally uh, dragging things. It, that was a, a translation that was going on that completely hid the fact that the, the physical actions were 100% different uh, than the, the digital version of that. Um, but that that abstraction, that that useful abstraction. This is this is a desktop, and there's the trash, and 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 here are the scissors. That allowed um, uh, him to introduce a new concept in a coherent way. That that everyone understood how to use a desk. Uh, therefore, you could use uh, a computer desktop, and that was very that made. It a friendly experience. And this was a new concept at the time. Computers weren't supposed to be friendly. And he was like, make, he told the designers, make it friendly. Uh, but, but that was the emotional resonance he was going for. Uh, and indeed, if you remember the icon on that Mac, it had a little smiling computer on the, the bigger computer. And, and you felt like this was your ally. It was a, anybody in essence could, could use it. And indeed it was, uh, although most people didn't recognize it as such, a bicycle for the mind. It was a tool that anybody could learn to ride and, 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 and take different places. As I read between the lines in your book, it's not just for us on how to create analogies. It's a better way to be analysts of analogies. Did I get that right? It is especially important that all of us become critical consumers of analogy. And that if, if you do anything uh, and take away anything from this talk, uh, this, this conversation, it's, it's two things. One is start listening uh, and identifying the analogies around you. And two is if you encounter an, an analogy, know that it's a spring-loaded argument. It's trying to get you to think uh, you know, this like that. Ask yourself, well, what is not alike between those two things? If you're thinking about what's not the same. You might come across disqualifying uh, attributes that say, listen, this is not at all like this. That's a bad analogy. And that, that can help save you striking out, as they say. For the person that's self-aware, how do we get better at delivering analogies? I would say uh, that, that it's important to, A, Try and note, go try and go through a day. I would say, A, try and go through a day 
with a notebook and write down every analogy you hear. And some things will surprise you. For example, the term crying wolf. That comes from Aesop's fables where the boy cried wolf. There's a, there's a wolf coming to get the sheep. There's a wolf coming to get the sheep. And he did it enough times when there wasn't a wolf that when a wolf did come, he was in trouble. So crying wolf. There's a, 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 an analogy that you might not recognize. Uh, same thing with sour grapes. It's, it's, a, it's another Aesop's fable where the, the, the fox wanted to get the grapes off the arbor and kept, couldn't quite reach them, kept jumping and finally gave up and said, oh, they were probably sour grapes anyways. And those are really complex ideas, crying wolf and sour grapes, and they're distilled down to their very essence through these, uh, through these, uh, these fables, which are, are a type of analogy. So start paying attention to the analogies around you. Second, take them apart. You don't have to take apart every analogy, but pick a couple and say, what is strong and resonant about these and, and, and what is uh, weak and, and obscured and, and see what's wrong with them. Because once you get in the habit of, of taking apart analogies, you're less likely to be fooled. And then the third uh, thing I would say is that it's important to, that, to recognize that more than one analogy can apply to any situation or challenge and try more than one analogy to explain different aspects uh, of, of the situation that you're encountering. And, and you'll find that, that it, it, it will really catalyze your creativity. There was a, a British mathematician, uh, E.P. Box, that said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Analogies are models. No analogy is going to be a perfect analogy, but some are useful. Books. John, I bet you read a ton. What are some of your favorites? I can't wait to hear what you like. The first and most influential book in my life was a book called Paddle to the Sea. And it's a children's book about uh, uh, a Native American boy who carved a small wooden canoe and set it on a snowbank north of Lake Superior. And this little wooden canoe's journey through the Great Lakes uh, to the sea. And that uh, inspired a love of geography and travel and adventure. And, and that was a very influential book that I'm now reading to my children. Uh, the next book uh, that, that I've, I've read a couple of times, and it's a hard book, but it's a worthwhile book, is Richard Hofstetter's uh, Anti-Intellectualism in American Life. And it won the Pulitzer Prize for History in 1964. And it is very relevant to understanding today's politics uh, and uh, rebellion against expertise and uh, celebration of the raw. And you see that this is a recurring uh, wave that passes through American history uh, over and over again. And, and uh, as they say, if you don't remember history, you're doomed to repeat it. And it's a great book. Uh, and then the third book that I just love is by one of my favorite authors, Robert Caro. And he wrote The Power Broker, uh, which tells the story of Robert Moses and his uh, rise uh, to become the most powerful person in New York uh, as the Parks Commissioner. And it is an outstanding study uh, in in political, economic, commercial power. What, what you take away from the book is it doesn't depend on title 
it, it depends on other much more uh, important factors, uh, some of them ugly, uh, but nonetheless uh, illuminating uh, if you seek to understand why some people are uh, able to do what they do. What are you doing these days? I am consulting. I help people articulate their ideas uh, more effectively. Uh, I uh, do that primarily through uh, the written word. Uh, I work with a, a range of clients in in the corporate, healthcare, nonprofit worlds, and I am busy raising two kids, one, three, one, five, and that keeps me really busy. John, this is a pleasure. Thank you for saying yes to being on the show. Well, I've enjoyed the conversation and I always like talking with other readers. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. My first job as an accountant was with KPMG in St. Louis. My first audit engagement was at State Community College in East St. Louis, Illinois. And I had a great in-charge named Keith. Now, I was poor, and I had been driving this Plymouth Horizon for several years. The, the lining on the ceiling was coming off. In fact, it was embarrassing when I'd be driving uh, from, from point to point, and I'd have other auditors in the car with me. It was just is embarrassing. Also, the air conditioning didn't work, had to roll down the windows. Imagine that in the heat of St. Louis with a suit on. So I needed a new car, and Keith had a Pontiac Grand Am, and I liked the look of the car. It was sporty, but not terribly expensive. So I started doing my homework on Grand Ams, and here was the craziest thing that happened. It seemed like every other car I noticed along I-70 on my way to work was a Grand Am, but that's not true. It just seemed like it. They always existed. What happened was my reticular activating system kicked in, RAS, and it connects the sleeping part of the mind to the wide awake part of the mind. Hey, I'm using an analogy. If anything, this conversation is going to activate your RAS. You're going to start noticing good analogies and bad ones, and that will help you to get better at them. As John says, practice if you want to get good at analogies. But the other starting point is listening for them and breaking down what makes them good. John Pollock, author of Shortcuts, excellent book. Hey, we need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf. <laughs>